Tonight's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, Quip, Audible, and our contributors at Patreon. On the last episode of Astonishing Legends, we brought you the strange and unusual tale of the Berwyn Mountain UFO incident that took place in Wales in January of 1974. It turns out that was only the beginning of a series of events that would unfold over the next several years in the area giving rise to it being known in some circles as the Welsh Triangle. Berwyn is a fascinating case. Lights in the sky, earth-shattering explosions, a sudden military presence, but no trace evidence of any kind, only hearsay. It was not, however, the only location that saw unusual air traffic and strange beings during this time. Just a few miles away, something unfolded only two months later that drew striking parallels to events that took place at Skinwalker Ranch in Utah. In fact, this story will leave you wondering if the two locations aren't connected in some way. The intrigue continues with eyewitnesses observing what would appear to be a base of some kind, situated on the impossible-to-reach Stack Rocks in nearby Pembrokeshire. Tonight, we look at all of that, and then prime you for the Broadhaven school incident, next week's episode, where an entire class of 10 to 11-year-old school children bore witness to a strange craft just a few hundred feet outside of their school. We'll do this by looking at other similar schoolyard UFO incidents from around the world. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. The thoughts came from the man, from the man's eyes. Elsa, a student at the Aerial School in Zimbabwe, describing a close encounter with an alien that 62 people witnessed in 1994. Join us tonight as we take a deeper look into the Welsh Triangle and other stories of UFOs appearing at schools. And we're back. Thanks entirely to you guys. As our show passes 50 million downloads since we started. Wow. Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's 50. I don't know. You know, they keep changing how you measure downloads. That's I think true. it's probably more realistically, it's between 35 million and 50 million, or maybe it's just 100. It could be 50. It could, the yeah, million could be, could be totally a misnomer there. Yeah. Yeah. So we want to take a moment to thank all 50 of you who've been listening <laughs> to us from the beginning. And we also want to welcome the new listeners we've gotten since we started. Indeed. You know, because the bottom line is is without you out there listening, there is no Astonishing Legends. Or I guess no one's there to hear it, I guess. It's kind of pointless. <laughs> it's just us, again, yeah. sitting in a dark booth in a bar. It's, it's well, uh, back to what we had before <laughs> we started this show. It's just Scott and I talking about weird stuff. Yeah. Our point is we're eternally grateful for your support, both on Patreon as well as with our sponsors. Yeah, you know, Astonishing Legends is not just Scott and I, of course. It's Sarah, our editor. It's Ryan, our sound designer and on-the-spot composer. And Tess, our head of research and secret owner of the company. Uh, yeah, who'd have thunk it, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's perfect, yeah. Listen, we know everyone doesn't love sponsorship messages, but we do. And this is why. Without sponsors, Astonishing Legends produces no income. And without income, Astonishing Legends 
would cease to exist. That is all too true. And so this message is just to say, you know, the next time you think you might be able to use something you heard about on our show, please remember to use the offer code or go to the URL or website link we provided because that's how our sponsors keep track of whether or not we're a good place to advertise. And the better place we are to advertise, the longer we get to keep bringing you astonishing content absolutely free. Wait, did I, I mentioned it's free, right? Totally free. Because it's free. Yes, thank you. <laughs> and if you can't remember a code or a link for something you were interested in, email us at astonishingcontact at gmail.com or simply visit astonishinglegends.com where you can find all the offers we've ever broadcast on the pages that go with each episode and a soon-to-be-drafted main page for all our sponsors, which we're going to get up there pretty soon. Yeah, that's right. we got we got to work on that. But like I said, if you listen to, because this happens to me, it's like I'll hear about something really cool, like some product, and I want to get it, and I also want to support a show, because I do that myself as a listener for other shows. For us, go to the webpage for that episode, and towards the bottom, you'll see all the codes and URLs you need to click on. And we make it really easy to just go right and purchase it. Yes, and they're in our newsletter too, which you can sign up for. Tess runs our newsletters and the sponsorship messages are there as well. That is true. And of course, thank you so much to all of our patrons too at patreon.com. We have some surprises planned for all you folks in the near future as well. Okay, so before we get into tonight's show, it's time for me to own up to my mistakes. <laughs> this is not an eight-part series. We don't have No, 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 I don't, for... I don't mean every mistake I've ever made. Oh, I, I, just I mean, see. I get it. I just okay. mean one from the Berwyn episode. <laughs> that was a big one and a funny one. A lot of our uh, UK listeners have gotten a, uh, having a laugh. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. since I was the one who baked this into the show, I got to take the hit on it. I will say I, I can't help but feel partly responsible for that as well. Well, you know, I wrote it and you read it. So, <laughs> that's true. Uh, that's true. <laughs> it did strike me as a, that's a very exact and peculiar number. Just, well, yeah. I would have placed so, that one extra call to just make it an even thousand. Here's what happened. Yeah. We suggested during the Berwyn incident that a thousand people called the police or constables in the area the night that everything happened. However, that was me misinterpreting <laughs> completely a bit of information about what I thought was 999 calls coming in, when really what it is, is it's 999. It's a phone number. It's not 999. <laughs> yeah. And you see in Wales, and I guess the UK in general, yes. when you have an emergency, you dial 999, not 911 as you do in the States. Well, let's just wait so, till a, a British podcaster says somebody placed 911 calls yeah. know, at an emergency. <laughs> I don't so know if that's going to yes. be as Hit stupid as I was. But thank you. There were so many people must have noticed that, and only a few wrote in. So I'd like to thank you for your forbearance there. Um, <laughs> all, all with good humor, which is what we appreciate. Just they're having a chuckle and uh, laughing with us. Yeah. So it, let's just say several phone calls came in to 999 regarding the Berwyn Mountain incident. But it almost certainly wasn't a thousand, which would literally have been everyone that lived in the village, oh, like even the babies. That's that's, <laughs> that's true. But uh, yeah, no, no, we uh, we deserve uh, no. Th again, thank you for the correction. We of course uh, had that been a, a Jeopardy question, I would have gotten it right. But like you're just you're the moment. Like yeah, okay, that's a very weirdly specific number. But anyway, so here we sit again on top of a three week run. So our most recent episode about Berwyn was the first in a three week arc of stories. And this one is something new for us because it's not exactly a multi-parter, but it's three episodes in a row that are connected by a common through line. And in this case, the through line is the multi-year Welsh UFO flap that took place in the late 70s. Right. So tonight we have a returning guest to our show. He's our in-house UFO expert, a long-standing member of the Astonishing Research Corps, and a podcaster himself with his own show, 
are strange skies. And, and that's Rob Christofferson. Ah, uh, yes. We've, we've watched him mature into a fine young man podcaster from a little <laughs> boy. He's really growing up with us, I feel like, uh, again, with his uh, early interest and contact with us and, and then now doing his own terrific show. He's such a font of knowledge. And we're very lucky to have him back. And as I said, after we did the interview, it's like, we could just keep talking about this. This is, <laughs> this is so much fun. Just what we're doing here, we just happen to be recording it. And that's kind of the spirit of the show. We hope you feel the same way. But again, we're very lucky to have him back on. And tonight he's going to teach us all about the other things that happened in Wales during those years following Berwyn. And then he's going to prime us for our next show on the Broadhaven School incident, where a UFO was seen by over a dozen school children in 1977 just three years after Berwyn. Yes, Rob took it upon himself to line up other similar cases from around the world to set the stage, if you will, for that next show, in which we'll be talking to an actual eyewitness from the Broadhaven incident. And we'd like to give a special thanks once again to freelance producer extraordinaire Reese Waters, as well as the podcast and BBC Wales TV show, The Unexplainers, quickly becoming one of my favorites, for sharing their intel with us on these three episodes. So we're very fortunate to have Rob Christofferson back on the show. He's been on our show before. You guys may know him from the podcast Our Strange Skies, and he's also a member of the Astonishing Research Corps, and we couldn't think of a better person to have on to talk about some of the other incidents that took place around the Broadhaven incident, and also incidents worldwide that seem to have uh, similar circumstances. But first, Rob, we just want to say welcome back. Thank you so much for making the time to come back on the show. Thanks for having me on again, guys. I can't even remember now. I know we've told this when you've been on before. You've been in the research corps for a while now, right? I want to say it's almost two years now. It was back when you guys were in the middle of recording the Mothman series. Oh, right. And I had just discovered you guys a few weeks before when you were when you were doing Skinwalker Ranch, and you had mentioned the Men in Black during that series because the they're very prominent during the Mothman flap. And I just remember tweeting you one day, and saying, uh, this all goes back to Albert Bender or something like that. And then I remember you uh, you DM'd me and you said, hey, do you want to join the research corps? I was like, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> why not? <laughs> yes, it was a lot easier to get in back then, for the record. Uh <laughs> <laughs> No, dude, you are without a doubt our resident expert on all things UFO-ish. And you have your own show. How many episodes have you done now of your show? We're in the 20s now, somewhere around there. Cool. We, uh, we've covered a lot of uh, a lot of ground, done a lot of interviews, and uh, it's a lot of uh, great content over there. I've even covered our favorite, Jim Sullivan, of all people. Yes. Did a little mini-sode on him. <laughs> yes, I love Jim Sullivan. And, R- and Rich Adams has been on your show, too. He has. We discussed the abduction phenomenon in depth for almost two hours. So if you want more Rich Adam, I've got you covered. <laughs> yeah, his middle name is In-Depth. Yeah. <laughs> and, and overexposed. So we'll have um, him back on ourselves at some point. Yeah, it's time to get him back in. So, Rob, you did a lot of legwork on this, and we can't thank you enough. There were a lot of events wrapped up in this time period and these school UFO stories are all pretty amazing. So what can you tell us about the Welsh UFO flap of 1977? And I guess what they call the Welsh Triangle or the Dovid Triangle. It's D-Y-F-E-D. Yeah. God help us with these Welsh pronunciations. But uh... I hearing it as kind of an, <laughs> a, a V and an F sound. Dovid, Dovid, Dovid. 
Yeah. Dove it. Yeah. You got ah, to say it quickly and, uh, yeah, and just throw it out there. <laughs> which, by the way, it's a historical, I think, county, which now is three counties. But for a while, it was one giant county. And that's where a lot of this stuff was centered that was associated with that particular flap. It's now three different counties, but it's still referred to ceremonially by that name, I guess. So anyway, where should we start out when we start to branch away from Broadhaven into other sightings that might have happened at the similar time? Realistically, the flap starts to begin in late December of 76. So you had sightings of either cigar-shaped objects or it was a classic saucer shape with a dome on top. And this type of object would be reported repeatedly over and over again during 1977. The most prominent of the flap and who features most is a family called the Coombs family. And they had a farm called uh, Ripperstone Farm. And it was located not far from Broadhaven, about two miles down the road or so. For them, it all started on January 14th, 1977. The matriarch of the family, and there are six members of the family in the household, the mother, Pauline Coombs, uh, was just doing dishes in her kitchen one day. And she looks out the window and she sees this orange light. And... It's just hanging out over the bay. Now, this is the western side of the coast. It's on the coast, so she's basically overlooking cliffs and everything, and she sees this object, and all of a sudden it starts making this pendulous motion back and forth. And she watches it for a while, and she gets a little uncomfortable with it, and all of a sudden it just shoots off and then down over the coast. She at first thinks this is like a plane or something that has gone down. So she rouses her husband, Billy, who was asleep in the recliner at the time because he's a farmer. He works hard days. He comes home, passes out in the recliner. <laughs> and the, the weather's just miserable. It's raining. And she basically tells him, hey, go down there. I think something happened. So she rouses her husband. She sends him down to the coast to see maybe this is a distress call. Could be a number of things. So... He goes out in the wind and the rain and uh, comes back a short while later and tells her there's nothing. He didn't see a dang thing. They kind of just let it be, but Pauline's just kind of unsettled by it for a long time. It's just something that eats away at her. And the next day, she picks up the local paper, and there's a little blurb in there about supposed UFO sightings that had been reported throughout the area. So... From there, they'd start to experience odd things around their house. The wires in their television, they would continuously burn out, and uh, TV would just go bad. There was actually twin daughters that they had, Leanne and Joanne. And Leanne would wake up almost every night in the two weeks after this incident, claiming to see a shadowy-type figure wake her up and then move out of the room. So we're crossing into UFO territory, like kind of shadow man territory a little bit here. And it only gets weirder from there. Light bulbs were exploding in the house at an unbelievable rate. One day, their oldest son, Clinton, was in their uh, bathroom getting ready for the morning. He worked at a nearby farm, and all of a sudden, he hears this low humming sound right outside the bathroom window. Then all of a sudden, it just moves in and fills the entire room, and it just kind of freaks him out. 
one night while they're returning one of their other son's friends, his name was Kieran, to a nearby house. They were coming back, and it was about 8 o'clock at night. They were actually trying to race home to go watch the $6 million man. <laughs> As we all did. <laughs> yes. You always have those really important details. Yeah, like, <laughs> I love that. Well, it makes, it, it, makes it human. Rob, quick question, yeah. though. Yeah. Wasn't it also their electricity being drained in the house at an alarming rate and really raising up their bill? Like, something was using the juice... And charging it to their account. Yeah, what happened was, is they actually looked at their electrical box one day. They shut everything off in the house, and they still saw that it was drawing power from somewhere. They had an electrician come out and check it, and the electrician basically said, there's so much electricity in the air, I'm surprised nobody has electrocuted themselves yet. Wow. Yeah. And every now and then when they would go and turn on the tap, they'd get a little jolt from uh, doing that. So a lot of electricity in the air, definitely a lot of weird stuff going on. But as they're returning home, they're about a mile from their house and they see this orange light in the sky and it gets lower and lower and then it starts approaching their car. And then all of a sudden it just zooms past their car, high rate of speed, turns back around And it's basically keeping pace with the car. And they're trying desperately to race home. They're less than a mile. She thinks she's going to make it. And then all of a sudden, the car lights are starting to get dimmer. And the car is slowly coming to a halt. And the UFO settles right over top of the car. And it drops this white beam of light down on it. The family is just terrified. They all run out of the car and just book it the last half mile to their house. And she bursts through the door. She tells her husband and her other son that we abandoned the car. There was, a, And the thing is, during this whole thing, they are honest 100% with each other. They tried to keep things from each other, but it didn't stop the stuff from happening. Why would it? So she tells them, you know, this UFO, it just settled over our car. So they're going out to go get the car because they don't believe her. And then they see the UFO dropping this white beam of light, and uh, all of a sudden it just zooms off. And this would happen repeatedly over the months, is that the car would also blow its wiring multiple times, three, four times. And the thing was, is like everything was burned up but the copper. The copper was always there, and I mean... Copper does have a has a high melting rate. It's somewhere near, I want to say, 2,000 degrees, so it kind of makes sense. But what would cause a car to blow its wiring like that? That's something that's fascinating. Apparently, the UFOs in the area were doing it. Wow. And this, I mean, this is real Close Encounters type stuff. I mean, it's straight out of Close Encounters, really. Yeah, it, it really is. And it just gets stranger and stranger. Hi, I'm Scott from the Fairy Tales for Unwanted Children podcast, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show. Well, there's always the same element, it seems, in, in a lot of these stories, like with your favorite, I think, uh, Lonnie Zamora, uh, being mm-hmm. a police officer, the car quits. There's some kind of control being influenced, and same here, except it seems a little more chaotic with this story in that it's like a lot of side effects nothing really kind of directed or as a message being shut off, perhaps uh, a little like the 
nuclear missile system being shut off at Malmstrom, which were all individually controlled. Mm-hmm. There's that was seemed to be like a message. This seems to be just side effects of a lot of electricity and energy being sucked out of the area or being used, and also a lot of weird high strangeness with pranks even, or just unintentional pranks. It definitely seems to have a trickster element to it at times. What you're going to find is that, kind of like on Skinwalker Ranch, certain things will come up missing in the house. There will be money that disappears and then reappears hours later. There was two cardigans that Billy had that he had never worn, and they just miraculously disappeared. (laughs) It's important to note during this flap that there are notable citizens. There was a former council worker in a town called uh, Milford Haven who was woken up at 5 a.m. and he sees this egg-shaped object making those pendulous movements outside of his window. Floating in the air, which is another element that we're going to get into shortly, is an eight-foot-tall, what they called a spaceman. Definitely a humanoid figure wearing this silvery-looking suit and it had a square-shaped helmet on it with a black visor. And this is going to happen to the Coombs family, too. So one day, this is in February, Billy rushes out. He gets home from work. He rushes out, and he tells Pauline this story about a friend's son named Mark. (laughs) And he was walking home one day, and he sees a saucer-shaped object just sitting in this one field, and it's glowing red. And all of a sudden, this spaceman comes forward. And the thing is, is he's not walking. He's Mm. gliding. He's like floating in the air. And he just keeps going and he keeps moving forward. And (laughs) Mark just books it. He's not sticking around for that. I don't blame him at all. No, no. After they hear this story, same night, uh, it's a Friday night. Billy and Pauline, they're having a date night at home. They're watching a movie on TV. And of course... Billy is passed out in the chair. He's had a hard day. Their dog, Blackie, which was a black Labrador, just starts getting uneasy. He's moving around. He's growling. And he's definitely unsettled by something. So Pauline's sitting in the chair, and she notices this light out the window that looks like car lights just coming down their driveway. And the thing is, it's like they're not getting any closer. They're just hanging there. She notices that there's also no sound because they have a gravel driveway and it's noisy as heck whenever you got a car driving down. Mm -hmm. So she looks out the window, doesn't see anything. She rouses Billy. She's like, go out there and tell those people to get off our property. And all of a sudden, this spaceman just floats forward in front of the window. Now, where they're standing, and the reason that we know that they're about eight feet tall is that from the ground to the top of the window was about seven feet. And they weren't even seeing its face. They were seeing mostly torso. And all of a sudden, it just keeps moving forward. It's maybe about four feet away from the window, and it just stands there in front of the window, presumably staring at them, though I don't know how, because it can't actually see into the window. And they're terrified. The dog is going nuts. Of course, what do they do? They send the dog out after it. Here we go again. The dog just runs away. The dog is not having any (laughs) of it. It runs off the property. And this being sticks its hand forward in in kind of like a gesture. It was 
almost like holding its hand out. It was causing the lights in the house to flicker. The TV just, it went all staticky and the window actually started to vibrate and they're just freaking out. Pauline goes and runs upstairs, checks on the kids and Billy just gets on the phone and calls his nearest neighbor and he calls the police. The police didn't sound like they took him seriously at the time, but uh, they arrived shortly after, I wanna say like maybe five minutes after placing the call. And when they first heard the sirens, the being actually just disappeared hmm. from the window. He just watched it not even fade away, just yeah. whoop, gone. And the cops come in the house <laughs> and they hear their story and they totally believe them 100%. They've gotten tons of calls like this and uh, <laughs> they ask him, well, aren't you going to check around the property? And they're like, no, we're too scared. <laughs> oh, <damn. laughs> wow. Yeah. The next day they're looking where the spaceman was just hanging there was a rose bush and it had been like burned to like ashes essentially. And there was a giant footprint. It was over, it was bigger than a, a Bigfoot footprint. For instance, it was really big. And uh, they would find a, a bunch of these on their property over time. But two days after this, Pauline would get a phone call from this woman named Rosa Grenville, and she owned the Haven Fort Hotel nearby. And she would describe seeing the same exact thing. She would see this orange colored object and these two beings just going around her property until they just disappeared. And then what you find is like every time that Pauline and the family have an experience after that, she will get a phone call from Rosa saying that she basically had the same experience. Wow. And how far away is Rosa? She's not far from Broadhaven herself. She's probably like maybe a few miles down the road as well. Okay. So after this, it would appear in the papers and it brought the family some ill will from a lot of people, including one guy who met Billy in a bar and actually threw a punch at him because of what they had reported in the papers. <laughs> what is that about? I don't Why know. is there violence <laughs> on the people? I guess maybe they're mad that it makes them makes everybody look crazy that lives it's, there. I don't know. You want to know my maybe. theory is that it's that. Yeah, because it's like there are private people. They're very serious. They work hard. Yes, they have their folklore, their Welsh folklore. <laughs> they're not into these kind of shenanigans. And I think it's embarrassing. So there's that element. But also tacked with that is that don't talk about these things because I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about the possibility. And it creates anger because then you have to kind of wrestle with it in your head, especially if these people are credible. So anyway, that's my theory of, of uh, yeah, just like, shut up. Yeah, <laughs> shut up. Valid mate. point. But yeah, you want to live that normal life as normal life a possible, and all of a sudden you have these weird UFOs and spacemen just coming to upset the balance exactly. of your life. Yeah. And it's not something that you really want to deal with. And it's kind of hard to put yourself in a situation like that. Put yourself in their shoes and try and figure out exactly how they're experiencing it because you don't know. It's like nothing on the human spectrum of experience. Right, right. But people are experiencing right. One it. One comment I'll make here is that, correct me if I'm wrong, Rob, but it's like the police reported also that they've never seen a family more scared. They were yeah, I, have, I actually have that quote yeah. here. The guy said, let's see, the policeman who responded to their uh, 999 call said in 1996 that in all his 26 years of service, quote, that was the most frightened family I have ever been to see. 
Exactly. So, yeah, that's what I was re- referencing is that quote. And what does that remind you of? The folks of Kelly Hopkinsville, the two families. It kind of rubs me the wrong way when I hear people. And I, I know it's a common thing to jump to. It's like, well, they're just doing this for publicity and trying to make a buck. And they just like the attention. It's like, none of this is good attention. You get punches thrown at you. You get ridicule. You get scorn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After a while, it's like, well, look, how can we deal with this in the best way we can? Maybe let people see it. You charge five bucks because you're tearing up my lawn. But overall, no one's getting really rich off this stuff or a lot of great popularity and notoriety. None of it's great. And so that always defeats that argument for me that they're just doing this for attention. Some people do. Some people pull pranks. And certainly there's a lot of accusations with this. And I believe there's another quote from somebody saying like, well, certainly there's probably pranks in the area. But those pranks were based off of something real that happened. And that's the way that life operates, not the other way around. And so something real generates pranks afterwards. But genuinely, there's a belief that these things are real. And I believe that even during the Mothman flap, there was even some hoaxing going on with a guy in his plane, you know, trying to scare <laughs> yeah, uh, people. <laughs> people with too much time on their hands. That's going to happen. There is. There's a story from the beginning of the UFO craze in 1947 of what they called the Woodworth saucer hoax, where these four kids basically built a flying saucer and they put it in this one woman's yard. And the thing is, is like this woman was the town (laughs) gossip. So word got around quickly. (laughs) Oh dear. And uh, it got so bad to the point that the government actually sent people out to collect this. And eventually the boys come forward and yeah, they're just laughing hysterically about it. And I'm pretty sure it wasn't a good day (laughs) for them though. The government, uh, the government slapped them. Well, no, it's like that uh, another Spielberg, classic Jaws where the two kids are are swimming around with a shark fin and they got rifles pointed at them and the Mm -hmm. kid points to the other kid like he made me do it people have these ideas like this will be (laughs) funny it's like no but the one incident though I thought in regards to a hoax is that and of course people are thinking this is that the woman who reported seeing it out the window who I believe you're just speaking of like there was tremendous heat she felt like her face was burning up Mm -hmm. what she couldn't figure out were men yes in silvery suits but coming out of these multicolored flames being generated by the craft. And again, tremendous mm-hmm. heat, and she couldn't figure that out. Like, how are they coming out of all this colorful fire? Didn't make sense. And people will say, like, well, yeah. that's just, you know, the local military uh, Air Force fire suits, and they're doing a drill. But really, it's a prank. It's like, wow, that is a really elaborate and technical prank to pull on a one woman at her house. It's yeah, too much. yeah. A couple of days after their incident with the spaceman, the neighbor that they actually called, his name was uh, Robert Morrison, the neighbor they called for help. His wife had actually seen a saucer shaped object, like the one that we've described. It's saucer shaped with a dome on it. She actually gets uh, measurements on it, presumably, and she says it's about 10 feet high and 50 feet in diameter. And it just sat in her rose garden for 10 minutes. Same kind of with Pauline here, except it was just a spaceman. And then it just flew off, you know, noiselessly, as many UFOs are said to do. It just continues on for the town. More and more UFOs are sighted. For the Coombs family, it starts to turn towards their cattle. And one day... Their son, Clinton, was uh, helping on the farm. He would do this on the weekends because he actually just worked 
on a, a neighbor's farm. He would do half days at the house, and he was bringing their cattle out to graze in a certain piece of land on their property, and they just would not go to that land for whatever reason. So he goes down, and he examines it, and there is a 50-foot diameter, basically scorched area of grass in a perfect circle. It's completely charred. The cows will just not go near it. They won't even step into the field. Two weeks later, the twins, uh, Leanne and Joanne, they're playing out in the fields, and all of a sudden they see one of the spacemen just floating. So they follow it through this hedge, and they come upon this one saucer that has landed in the corner of their field. And it's got this ladder down. The spaceman has just disappeared. They don't know where it went. But all of a sudden, the ladder goes back into the ship. The ship drops a red box. And it lifts up, shoots off, and meets up with another UFO, a bigger UFO. And they just zoom away. Wow. So the girls go looking for this red box that they saw it dropped. And they can't find it. <laughs> How old are these girls? I want to say that they're like seven or eight, somewhere in that range. I didn't get an exact age okay. on them, but... They're a lot braver than yeah. I am. <laughs> <laughs> What's in the box? <laughs> yeah, obviously there's a... Uh, you said there's a red box. It's some kind of technical thing with yeah. them, but they saw it, so they go looking for it. Are they keeping a visual contact with it? They just see it drop, so they assume that when okay. they're going to go over there, it's going to be there, right. yeah. and they go over yeah. there, and it's not. But... <laughs> what they find is a lot of, there's a humming sound or a whirring sound that they described it as, and it's like statically charged in the area. Hmm. This is like a Sunday, so they have family over, and <laughs> they run in and they tell their mother that, oh, we just saw this UFO and the spaceman, and it was down in the field, and Pauline is had enough. She's going to go down there. She's going to confront whatever this is. <laughs> So yeah. she goes down there with the twins, and while they're going down there, they do see another UFO. It lifts off, and it flies away. And what they find is there's another 50-foot diameter circle of scorched grass. And they also find these really large footprints, like the one in the Rose Garden, and it's just making a, a straight line through this one hedgerow, which is very strange because they never describe these beings as walking. They are always floating. Yeah, they're floating, but there's footprints. I was going to yeah, ask about that. Yeah, which is very strange. Uh, I, I don't get that. Yeah. But uh, Pauline's courage is not <laughs> as great as she thought. She gets freaked out. She does go to the spot where the red box allegedly dropped, and she does feel the static and she does hear the whirring sound. So later that evening when uh, Billy goes to take her parents home, cause they just come by for an evening meal and she sees one of these spacemen just floating up the driveway and then past the house. They see this repeatedly over and over again during the whole flap, these beings just going by the house Billy's got to stay up late because it's that time of season where cows are giving birth and he's got to be there to make sure everything's all right. So one of the twins, Leanne, was in the bed with her when they were going to sleep. And the next morning, 
Pauline wakes up. Her eyes are puffy and they're swollen and her arm is just, it's paralyzed. It won't move. And uh, at first she thinks, you know, I just must have slept on it wrong or something like that. She tries to get up and she has a difficult time doing it. Later on in the day, because she finds out that both of the twins have these weird-looking rashes on their skin. One has it on their foot, the other has it on their ankle. And presumably it's from, you know, walking into that scorched area of grass. At least that's the way that I took it. But allegedly during the night, while they were attempting to go to sleep, Leanne was awake and she sees this disembodied spectral silver hand floating in the bedroom it goes over touches pauline on the arm and then it just leaves the room i'm at a loss with this <laughs> wow yeah. okay so it touched her on the exact arm that is now going through all this soreness it's really painful and the condition lasts for about two weeks the rashes stick around for about a week after that, unfortunately, they had to have their dog put down because its behavior had changed so much that it was so dramatic that uh, it, it was unpredictable. It was lashing out. They actually had, just had to have the dog put down. Blackie? Yep. Blackie was put down. Didn't they send Blackie outside at yeah, one point? Yeah, they Blackie sent Blackie outside land. to confront the spaceman at the window, and Blackie just ran off down the road. <laughs> right. <laughs> Every time that they had... Um, tried to put the dog out after that it would just howl and bark until it came back in and this poor dog is traumatized for life because it sees a spaceman oh. at the window and yeah they just unfortunately had to have it put down no blackie went to live on a farm blackie went oh, wait, to live they were already on, a farm. on a, he was already living they were on already, a farm. yeah yeah that doesn't work <laughs> but there's something that affects animals differently and uh, more severely mm -hmm. it seems than humans humans can get affected you know, of course, immediately what I'm thinking of is that when you see stuff like this, it affects you physically. So, of course, the puffy eyes, the swollen, the rash, it's like, you know, it makes me think of uh, actinic conjunctivitis, mm -hmm. looking at Mothman or whatever those red glowing eyes are doing to you, plus all these other symptoms what people report when they see, not always, but when they see or encounter something like this, there are physical effects which are not good. Yeah. And then the floating hand, what is that doing? Again, is that like, I'm here to say yeah. hi. Oh, sorry about the rash. And, and the puffy eyes, the neuropathy. Mm -hmm. So it's like this awkward kind of interaction, which is sounding so much like Skinwalker Ranch. There are parallels to all these other cases yeah. where it's just weird. It's not Disney. No. It's not fun stuff. No. The high level of high strangeness that is almost beyond the spectrum. It's going to continue, and um, Pauline does get a call, like, the next day from uh, from her good friend Rose over at the hotel, and uh, she had seen an actual orange light doing that pendulous motion right out her window. So this is all, like, confirmation for Pauline. She's just, other people are experiencing it, reporting it, they're telling them, and just kind of lends more validity to the whole flap that's going on here. And now uh, we're going to veer it a little bit again. So this event happened in between May and June. There was a Jubilee Day celebration happening in the area, and most of the family went to festivities that were happening in town. Billy was down tending to his farm, and the only one in the house was uh, their oldest boy, Clinton. When Pauline comes back, 
the door's locked and uh, all the shades are drawn and she's just pounding on the door, pounding on the door and Clinton comes to the door and, and he's just, you know, trying to figure out, make sure that it's his mother because he tells her this story about this enormous silver car that made no sound as it drove over the gravel, came down their driveway, pulled up in front of their house and there were two men and these men are going to fit a description that have been described before. They wore dark colored suits. They were very tall and thin. They had non-blinking eyes, waxy skin, abnormally large foreheads, dark slick back hair, and they glided instead of walked. Um, and they didn't really move their arms much. So we basically have the men in black. They make yeah. a visit to the farm. Clinton, when he saw him pull up, was just scared out of his wits. So he locked the doors, the front door and the back door. And um, he just went and hid upstairs. And the Coombs, they had a neighbor nearby. They lived on a house that was actually on their property that they rented to this one woman named Carol. And allegedly she saw these. It was just one man. There was another one in the car, but... This one man just goes up to the house, tries to get in, goes to the back end, tries to get in again. And um, she has the idea that she's going to bring the trash out. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe they can help. Yeah. And it's a good three to four minute walk from where those men are to her house. So she goes out back. She's about to drop the trash in the bin. And all of a sudden, the man just appears right beside her. Oof. Yeah, and he says, and I quote, where is Pauline Coombs? When will she be back? And Carol tells her that she doesn't know, and the moment after she says that, the man disappears. She goes back inside, she goes to the front room to see where the silver car is, and that man has appeared right next to the silver car again. They both get in, and they both drive off. So you can appear and disappear, but you still have to get in the car. Yeah, exactly. Okay, just checking. Wait, so you, are right. you saying that he, he <laughs> vanished in mid in thin air? Yes, he just disappeared. When she said she didn't know when she was coming back, boom, disappeared. Wow. And then yeah. when she went to the front of the house to look out the window, there he was. And like I said, it's a good three to four minute walk from where that driveway was to her house. It's It's insane. Okay. Wow. And the car takes off down the road, and around that same time, Pauline was coming home from the celebration. You would have figured that she would have passed this car on the way, right? Nope. Yeah. Didn't see it. Didn't pass it. Didn't see a thing. You know, Clinton tells her this story. They go and they get Carol. She tells her side of the story. Interesting enough, days later... Who does she get a phone call from but her friend Rosa? <laughs> Guess who visited the motel? Two men in black. Similar situation. Rosa wasn't in, but her daughter was. And they basically asked the same thing. Where is Rosa Grenville and when will she be back? Thus continues the cycle that uh, of one thing leading to another. After this incident, everything quiets down for about two months. And then things start to pick up in September. One day, uh, their son, Kieran, basically, he was outside. He was about to go in to uh, wash up for lunch, and he sees this 
tall, skinny, black shape just wandering around the house and just going by their kitchen window. And uh, apparently, when he described its movements, he said it undulated, which is terrifying. I don't even want to think about that. (laughs) (laughs) And later that day, their TV had failed for the first time in months. Okay. This was a couple weeks later. Kieran was driving their tractor down to, I believe, the cow sheds, and he claimed to hit this woman, this woman dressed in white, and she had long flowing hair. He felt a bump at the time when he hit her. He didn't mean to, but she just appeared out of nowhere in front of the tractor. Hits her, gets down, goes to look, and there's nobody there underneath the tractor. It's the lady in white. <laughs> yeah, across exactly. the pond. Yeah. You know, maybe, you know, Resurrection Mary was paying a visit to Wales. <laughs> I don't know. It's exactly <laughs> the same thing. What's going on here? Hey, this is Alex Greenwood. Thanks for listening to Astonishing Legends, where you'll both be astonished and... Hmm, well, there's really nothing clever after that, is there? Okay. Well, you should listen to the show anyway. After this, this is where we get very Skinwalker Ranch-ish. One night, Billy's tending to the cows. Uh, again, it's birthing season, so he's working late nights to make sure that If uh, a birth is happening in the middle of the night, you know, he's there to take care of it. He goes in, he checks on all the cows. They're all in their pens. Everything seems all right. And all of a sudden, he gets a phone call. And it's a gentleman by the name of Martin Chambers. He lives on a farm just down the road. I think it's a couple miles down the road. And he tells Billy that his cows are now on his property. And that he's actually been trying to get a hold of him for an hour because they've just been grazing on his land for an entire hour. Billy knows, I was just there. I just saw these cows two minutes ago. They were all there. Goes back over to the pens, empty, completely empty. And the locks are still bolted. There's no way they could have gotten out. So Billy goes down, he brings his herd back, and he's dumbfounded. He he cannot explain it. But uh, just that weirdness of... Only minutes before, but yet he's been trying to reach him for an hour saying that his cows are on his land. And this isn't just a few cows. We're talking about a hundred cows mysteriously disappear and end up on another guy's property just in minutes. Right. And this is going to be a familiar theme. He's going to go through this a bunch of times. Well, they do love to play with cows and (laughs) steers and lock them and move them and not yeah. mess with the locks. Uh, same with uh, the the Sherman Ranch, <laughs> the Skinwalker Ranch, and uh, Terry and yeah. Glenn Sherman. It definitely had some tricksterish elements to it because uh, there were a couple of occasions where he would go down to the pens because they each had kind of their own stall, like cows do. Yeah. At one point, he found two of them locked in the same stall. So um, <laughs> definite tricksterish elements. Uh, it's not like, you know, locking four bulls into a trailer, but, you no. know, it's... <laughs> <laughs> and waiting for that surprise to happen to the, uh, to the <laughs> owner or the unfortunate person opening it. But yeah, there's, there's something where they're moving stuff around, but the tone of it, it's almost, maybe it's only partially or unintentional, you know? Yeah, and they grapple with this idea that maybe it's just examining them maybe it's studying them to see how they're going to react to certain situations it definitely kind of has that tone to it but there's not exactly this tone of 
wanting to reach out to communicate. There's no reports of like telepathic communication with anything. And uh, nobody else in the area had reported that either. Right. So things die down again for a little bit. And then they kick up in November. And on November 12th, uh, 1977, Pauline was going to pick up her parents and uh, their daughter, another daughter of theirs. They were going to come over for a weekend meal, as you do. And as they're coming back, this is in broad daylight, or um, this is what I like to call UFO happy hour, because they're out early. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They're about a mile from the farm, just like that experience before where it disabled the car and they're all looking out the window and they can see this object. It doesn't appear to be at a very high elevation, but it's just hanging out near the sun. And then all of a sudden it just gets lower and it starts to do that pendulous motion and it sticks with them for a while until about the time that they pull onto their road to go to their house. And then all of a sudden it shoots off and into the bay uh, toward this rock formation. They're called stack rocks. And basically, there are these like jutting rocks that uh, shoot up 60 feet into the air or so. It might not be that high, but they jut out in the bay. If you Google them, they're very beautiful looking. And um, they pull in. The, the car didn't die, thank God. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Pauline is just... She wants to do the right thing. So she's going to go down to the coast to make sure that nothing is crashed or anything. And her parents tell her that it's not a good idea. You shouldn't go down there. Just don't do it. And she's resolute. She's going to go down there. She's going to take her oldest son, Clinton, and they're going to go. And uh, instead, every single member of the family, except for her parents, go down there with her. They go down. They see on top of the rocks, they see these spacemen doing different things. They look like they're maybe gathering samples of rocks or something like that, but they see this opening in the rocks. It looks like a doorway, and they can see another being coming out, similar spaceman, just doing what they're doing. They're just looking looking at them in astonishment. The legend behind these rocks, nobody knows really anything about them. There's no legend associated with them. And they just keep looking on astonished. Thank you. Uh, no problem. No problem. <laughs> Rob and gets a dollar I'll, every time he, uh, he mentions that. <laughs> I'll, I'll hit you with my PayPal later. Thank you. Um, and all of a sudden, these beings just turn and look at them. And they're just staring at them. And then they know, we got to get out of here. So they just run back inside it adds another element to just the weirdness of that time. And what they start noticing around the farm is that the air is actually warmer than it should be for that time of year. And I mean, you have like winds just whipping through there, no winds, there's no birds in the area. And it's kind of like a dead zone. Two of their cows and three of their calves end up going missing. They're never seen again. Hmm. And, um, More weirdness, Uh, Clinton's down working on this fence one day, and all of a sudden he sees this shadow come up looming behind him. He assumes that it's his father. Turns around, nothing there. (laughs) Do you know what's interesting? I wanted to see the stack rocks. I looked them up while you were talking. Do you know who owns them? No. The Ministry of Defense. 
Okay. Yes. Interesting. Now it says there's a road that passes through a tank range. So that would maybe be why, but I guess there's a base there or near there, but this is a beautiful park open to the public. As long as the MOD is you check with them first and make sure it's okay to go. Yes. The theories around why this was centering around the family, there was one gentleman that came to two conclusions. One, they were in a high, an area that had a lot of military concentration. So nearby you had the Broady Royal Air Force Base, mm-hmm. the Royal Aircraft Establishment Missile Range. Mm-hmm. The area was a supersonic low-flying corridor. It also had a tank range and a Navy submarine tracking station that yes, uh, the I U.S. Read about government that. had. Right, which was using microphones to track submarines. Yes. So you mm-hmm. had all that going on in the area, and they were familiar with all of the military stuff that was going on. They saw planes. They saw them drop flares. This was totally different. You know, There's yeah. been a lot of talk about Harriers, and then also about the, the men in silver being military personnel in fire suits, maybe training, but I don't know why you would train near a school or somebody's backyard. And then on top of that, even though those suits, they they do have a lot in common with the black visor. I was looking at them today before we did this call. Yeah. I I was having a hard time finding any from the period, but I was seeing some, the more modern ones. It's like fits that perfect description and it does make you look taller because you got this big crazy hat helmet thing on. Mm -hmm. But as far as I know, they don't float. (laughs) <laughs> they don't float. No. And again, why yeah. would you be doing a dangerous, you know, fire drill, kind of an exercise there near civilians that closely where the woman viewing them and people viewing them say it feels really yeah. hot. It's like you wouldn't, yeah. it's the wrong place for it. And then if you were doing a prank with that, how did you get that gear and set that up to do a prank? Well, yeah, I mean, you'd have to be on the work on the base. I guess you could get the gear, but I don't know how. It's just not a usual, yeah, it's not a usual thing. Yeah. It's, it doesn't, no. again, it's a, an explanation that falls far short of the mark for me. Yeah. Beyond that, they witnessed tall, shapeless columns of light that would just float on their own and disappear. At one point, Pauline was just alone at night, and she sees... The front yard and her house just light up like as bright as daylight, and it sticks around for maybe a minute and then disappears again. While returning home from the farm one day, Billy sees these two luminous floating beings. He doesn't describe them as being like the spaceman. He doesn't really give them much of a description at all, but he just watches them float away and and move into the darkness and... At this point, they're at their wit's end. They weren't getting help from anybody. Nobody could explain to them what was going on. So they got into contact with this one UFO investigator named Paul Palmer. And he comes out to the farm. He talks to them for about six hours. He's coming up with these theories of why he believes this is happening to them. One, the military connection. The second one is the fact that you have a family of six here. And if these are beings that are from some other planet or from some other dimension, whatever, they would kind of be a perfect sample size. That's what he thinks. And, you know, maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong. But Right, um, right. (laughs) So he comes over with his fiancée, Janet. They stay for a couple of days. The repeated events of the cows disappearing. This had happened a number of times 
after the first incident. He would find them on two different farms. <laughs> and while Paul Palmer was there, his cow herds disappeared three times within the span of three hours. Wow. All ended up on the same farm. And the first time that they went looking for them, they ended up on Martin Chambers' farm. They searched the area up there. It was like commonplace for him. He'd always go up there. He'd always go up to this other farm called Clover Farm to look for them. They go up to Martin Chambers' farm. They're not there. They come back an hour later. They didn't see him anywhere else on the road. There's nowhere else they could be. They're all of a sudden there on his farm. How many is this again? Do we know how many this 100 is? 100 cows. Again with the same. cows. Well, this is so reminiscent of Skinwalker. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, maybe it's the yeah. same team of uh, interdimensional weirdos. Yeah, and it, it also feels like an experiment. It feels like it's like you were saying, Rob. It's like it's not an attempt to communicate as much as to, hey, let's do this and see what they do. Mm -hmm. you know, well, it's starting to remind me also of Dark City with Rufus Sewell, where people don't know it. They're part of an experiment by these weird men in black type aliens or just weird interdimensional creatures that want to find out how we react to certain scenarios. So every night at midnight, everyone falls asleep. There's your time difference. No one can remember what daylight looks like. And they change these scenarios around. And they just want to see how they want to study us humans. But the people mm -hmm. in it don't, they don't get it. They just know something's wrong. Something's off. This doesn't make sense. And, yeah. uh, and they're switching us around. So it has elements of that as well. It's just something, as Charles uh, Hoy Fort said, we're all, he's convinced we're all just part of someone else's experiment. Yeah. The other thing is like very, um, I mean, if this is a very human approach, but like, why do you put all the cows over there? Well, it's to get you the cattle, to get you to go over there and deal with it so we can do something back where they are normally. And mm -hmm. you'll be over there getting them. And then we're going to go and, you know, if it was the FBI, we'll plant the bugs or whatever. It's like, <laughs> yeah. so what, what are they doing while you're off rounding them up again? Right. You know? If they come into this, uh, our reality from Stack Rocks, well, they're right there. They can do whatever. But yeah. one thing that they thought and they kept going over and over in their heads is that this keeps ramping up. Something bad's going to happen. Kind of like Mothman. This impending doom of something's in the air and it's got to be leading to something. Right. The interesting thing to note is like, if you're listening to this and you're thinking the cows are just getting out. One, every single time the paddocks are locked and he goes yeah. and he checks on them. Secondly, it had been raining and it started to rain like after the first time they brought them back. There were no cow tracks in the mud. So whatever's happening, all of these cows are just disappearing at once and appearing on these nearby farms. And I mean, even those, the first time, they disappeared for about an hour before they yeah. just made their appearance on that guy's farm. Were you telling us before about a connection with UFO sightings or activity and weather that they don't often happen when it's, you know, raining downpour or does it have any effect on you or do you see a pattern there with weather? It's not often that you actually see UFO reports and rain. That's what I. Or, that's what I thought. That's yeah. how, what I was getting at. Scott sent me a quick shot of a heavy downpour in North Carolina a while back, and uh, I was kind of teasing him because it was dark and stormy at night, and the the wipers <laughs> are going, and and uh, it's like, oh, perfect time to see you, you know some kind of weird craft. And I thought, wait yeah. a minute, I guess you, <laughs> guess you don't really hear that much about appearances in like heavy weather downpours. No, and when you look at the stats for UFO sightings, 
generally there's a lull from about January to May, and then it'll uptick. It'll go reach its peak in about July, August, and mm. then it'll come back down again. And that's that's a continual thing. It's, wow. It's the first wave of sightings in 47. That's exactly how it happened. You right. had these few reports that would trickle in from earlier in the year and starting in May, and then they would just peak in July, early July, around July 8th, and then it would just go back down. Wow. That's the general trend. Well, everybody loves warm weather. <laughs> Jeez. So after Paul Palmer leaves, they're just exhausted. They go to bed. Everybody's on edge. They're sleeping together in rooms and doors are open. They're just so on edge that uh, they're f going to sell the farm. And Pauline ends up... As she's going to sleep, she sees this column of light filling in from the room that she just assumes is the hallway light because one of the kids said, please leave the hallway light on. And all of a sudden, she just finds herself not in her bed anymore, but in this domed room sitting on a bench. And in front of her, she can see these six women if you had to describe them, and they don't always do the best job describing them, beings or anything in this book that I got this from, which is called The Uninvited by uh, Clive Harold. One of these women just comes over to her. She's fairly normal looking. There's also these men in black types there. They've got the waxy skin and the high foreheads, and this one of them just stares at her. She doesn't say a word. There's no telepathic communication. And then she's transported back into her bedroom. And she's left with this feeling of peace and this sense of calmness. And she just sleeps the day away. Well, not the day away, but she, she sleeps in a little bit. And the next day, they're really discussing selling the farm. And she's having second thoughts now because she thinks it's essentially over. And the family goes out. They go over to her mother's house. Uh, Billy and Pauline, they end up going out for a drink that night at a local pub. And as they're coming back, they can see this yellowish object just moving near the house. And it's within this copse of trees, as they like to say on <laughs> Astonishing Legends. Yes, <laughs> the copse. Scott likes to say. And uh, they pull in. They don't really have reservations about it. They're not as on edge. And they pulled down towards the cow sheds and they see this orange light just hanging above the cow sheds. And all of a sudden it does that pendulous motion that it first did when in Pauline saw it as if it was acknowledging them. And then it just shot right up and disappeared and nothing happened to them after that. The whole flap just died down after that. So that was it. That was the that end. That was it for the Coombs family and for the Southwest Wales flap. They went through hell. <laughs> wow. Any other flaps after that? Not really. Not until you get to the 80s in the Hudson Valley when you had a really significant flap from 1983 till about 1987 that went through the Hudson Valley area of New York and into Connecticut. Right. That's right. really the last significant flap. 
mm-hmm. that we've really ever had. There are small flaps that you hear about, like in 2008 in Stephenville, Texas. And right. numerous people saw lights over Stephenville. What years were NIDS out at Skinwalker doing their research? 1990. That was later. Okay. Yeah, 96 to they folded in 2004, maybe. Yeah. But Rob, you said these things kind of go cyclically. There's decades. Is it by decade? Or you said, I remember you uh, telling us these things kind of cycle through. So every 10 years, every decade, or every every few years, it's like a sine wave. It goes up, it goes down. Yep. We can trace it back to the 60s. And from the 60s all the way up to the 90s, there is one per decade. There's one giant mass observed landing and it starts in the Westall school landing in Melbourne, Australia Mm. on April 6, 1966. And what you find is it's always a really public place or a school. Right. And it generally involves children. So this connects us back to Broadhaven. Yeah. This is fascinating. I just want to say quickly, I know what you're about to talk about because you told us what you were <laughs> going to talk about, but I hadn't heard of several of these. I knew about Westall, but that was the only one. The other ones I did not know about. It's really fascinating mm. stuff. And it, yeah. even if we wanted to go further back, not necessarily to a landing, but a mass sighting, there was a mass sighting in uh, Papua New Guinea in 1959. This was actually a case that kind of really ticked J.L. and Hynek's box as being one of the most credible cases where entities were seen, occupants. This was the case of uh, Reverend Gill. He was a missionary from Australia. And over the course of two nights, 38 people saw this UFO that would come out of the clouds and it would hover about 500 feet in the air. And it basically kind of looked almost like a top hat kind of it had a base at the bottom and a platform on top and they would see these human looking people just come out and start doing things randomly like they were working on their ship and this object would hang in the air for hours at a time and they would watch it the second night they watched it and they waved at the beings on this ship and they waved back every time what yeah well, again, that's the law of the sea. You, if you wave at a boat, they got to wave back. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> they did this the second night, and they kept trying to get this ship to land, but it never would. You did an episode on this, yeah, didn't I did you? A, I need to listen episode. to this. Yeah. Um, it's, I believe I titled it, Is This Band Ever Going to Go on Stage? Because it kind of seemed like <laughs> they were roadies prepping yeah. for something. Setting up drum kits, <laughs> uh, standing up guitars, but it never fit. <laughs> that is a genius title. I major points for that. Um, yeah. But uh yeah, they watched that for a few nights and um it's one of the most well documented and credible mass sightings ever recorded. And then uh-huh. you go to Westall where this saucer shaped object is it comes down near the Westall High School and there's these kids playing cricket on this oval and they see it come down and land in this copse of trees again. (laughs) Mm, Better call the cops. Oh, yeah. Call the cops, man. (laughs) Got to take cover. And uh, just land in this copse of trees, and approximately 200 eyewitnesses witnessed this. There's no occupant seen at the time, but uh, eventually this object lifts up 
and flies off. There are reports, actually, that it was at one point surrounded by military vehicles. So I, I that's kind of conflicting reports. But after that sighting, there were government officials that showed up at the school. They interviewed some of the kids. And there was allegedly a teacher that had a camera that took photos of this thing. They confiscated the camera and uh, the film. And there are some reports saying that they actually, because this person was so upset, they took them away in a straitjacket. Um, oh. But allegedly, the area where this ship landed, the Australian government actually just dug it up and uh, removed all evidence that it had ever landed. And this thing was in view for about 20 minutes. So from there, you go to Broadhaven, which you've covered, and... Uh, 14 eyewitnesses uh, witness a craft, and some of them even say that they witnessed a being. You uh, move on to September 27th, 1989, approximately 6.30 p.m. in Voronezh, Russia. And <laughs> where this incident occurs is uh, known as South Park. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ah. Yeah. But there are these uh, three kids, Basya Sharon. Jenya Blinov and uh, Julia Sholakova, they're all playing in this park, and they witness this pink light in the sky start to descend. It turns a bright, dark red, and it hovers in the air for approximately 40 feet from the ground. They can see the grass being disturbed as if it's you know has great air blowing on it. And after... A short period of time, it actually flies away. And then a few minutes later, the object returns, and there's a bigger group of people. There's adults. There's about 40 people out there now looking at this thing, and a hatchway opens, and they see what they describe as a 10-foot-tall, three-eyed alien. And, <laughs> and the way that they describe it and the depictions of it, it almost looks like Juggernaut from the X-Men. <laughs> <It's really, laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, it's really tall. And like it looks like it's wearing this hood over its head and it's got three holes in it. It's wearing a silver colored suit with bronze colored boots and this disc shaped object in its chest. And uh, from 40 feet in the air, it just looks like it's surveying the terrain. The uh, hatch closes up, the sphere lands, and they see legs coming out and just going into the ground. Apparently, it also took down some tree branches on the way down as well. And the hatch opens again, and this really tall being comes out. And it's got this short, three-foot-tall, boxy robot. And Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it just Was it getting... Rosie from the Jetsons? No, it's... it's... <laughs> It's not, but uh, it looks like something straight out of Star Wars. When you see, like, robots walking around that look really boxy, it kind of reminded me of that a little bit. Yeah, but... yeah. Hey, I can't tell you who I am or where I'm at, but I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Here they come. I gotta go before they find me. We talked about this in uh, uh, prior to recording that these things often have visual tie-ins with popular culture. And so earlier, the thing at the window, that's Gort from the day the Earth stood still. 
Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, exactly. He didn't try to it, or a silver hand, but it, and it's not exactly Klautu Barada Niktu, but yeah. And people have often wondered that: are these things that are interacting with us, even the humanoid ones, are they some kind of clone or android or something that's not totally biological, mm-hmm. but a hybrid of the two, or it's just a robot? Or in some of these cases, what you're describing, Rob, is that yeah, these do sound like machines. Yeah. More so than people. Well, whatever, you know, biological entities. As it gets weirder, the tall being steps out on the ground, utters this incantation that they can't make out, but all of a sudden, on the ground, this two-foot-by-four-foot square of light appears on the ground, a white light. And it's there for maybe about a minute, and then this really tall being utters another incantation, and it disappears. And then he goes to adjust something on the small boxy robot and it starts to move on its own. And from there, there was a, a young kid standing nearby. He looks at this tall being and he screams. And then all of a sudden he just freezes. He can't move. And the way that the report reads, it's that this large being's eyes began to glow. Two of the um, eyes were allegedly like a white colored light and the top one was a red one, and this kid just froze in mid-movement. And as more people started to shout at the sphere to kind of just get him out of it, it just disappears momentarily. Five minutes later, the being in the sphere returns, and this being is holding a silver rod in its hand. And in UFO lore, silver rods are seen over and over and over again. They're seen in Scott's favorite, Whitley Strieber's account. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one of the beings that he interacts with touches one of these silver rods to his head, and he sees visions of the end of the world, basically. But a lot of people report that when they are abducted, these beings point a silver rod at them, and they just can't move. They're paralyzed. Mm. Well, it's got to be shaped so. like something. <laughs> it also reminds <laughs> me of the finale of the X-Files. It was probably bronze-colored, but it uh, had a knob on the end, but they were using that to dispatch people, kind of incinerate yeah. them. But always, yeah, it's a primitive, formative shape. So <laughs> what's going to happen next is going to terrify yeah. you even more. The tall being points this silver rod at a 16-year-old boy, and he suddenly just disappears. Ooh. Oh, yeah, I read, I read about this. Yeah. And we got a kid that disappeared? Of course, in Russia, they're just like, no, there was no kid. You know, I don't know. <laughs> like, if that happened in the States, there would be a record. I couldn't find anything about the actual kid. Mm. No, I couldn't either, and that's, and yeah. that's the thing. But I trust the sources because Jacques Vallée himself actually went to Russia to investigate this. Good point, good point. So the being gets back into his sphere, and it shoots off. The boy reappears as soon as the craft shoots off, and it's like he never left. What's interesting to note here and what you're going to find over and over again with these mass landings is that there's generally UFO activity in the area when it happens. So from... September 21st to September 29th of 1989, there was all sorts of UFO activity in Verona's. And there was actually another landing reported by two boys where they saw two different types of beings actually walking around. And many of them described seeing these red spheres. um, And when they reported them, they were between the hours of 6 and 9 p.m. 
and they also determined uh, because the sphere left depressions in the ground. They determined when they examined them that it was made from, by something that weighed approximately 11 tons. Wow. So it's heavy. So the final uh, mass observed landing occurred on September 16, 1994 at the aerial school in uh, Rua, Zimbabwe. There were 62 eyewitnesses to this. And this is one of those cases that people are still obsessed with today, mainly because it was investigated by good investigators. The kids are, um, <laughs> they were left unsupervised. So there's this kind of gray area, but essentially what happened was they were out on a mid morning break at about 10 o'clock in the morning. And the aerial school is kind of a school for people who spend short periods of time in Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. So the age ranges are from about five to 12 years old. And they see these, they describe them as three silver balls in the sky, and they would flashlight, disappear, and then appear to, in a different place. And they did this a few times until one of them just came down and landed in this one area that was actually forbidden for students to go because it, it was overrun with brambles. There were snakes and really big spiders in there. So it was essentially an off-limits area. But it wasn't fenced off or anything like that. You could go walk over there. And this object lands within, you guessed it, a copse of trees. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand. It seems to me a copse would be a hard place to land. But, you know, it's the same thing with Berwyn. It was up in a copse of trees, right by a copse of trees. There's always above. a copse. Yeah, it was above. Mm -hmm. There's something to uh, either to hide it yeah, there's something about the thicket of trees that makes it conducive or just as a visual guide. But it's not always the case, certainly. Rob will tell you, I believe. You know, where there's where there's yeah. trees, it could be a big open landing. But, you know, Kelly Hopkinsville, it was mm -hmm. a low part of the area, but there was a thicket of trees nearby. Yeah. Where, the you know, the guy at the well couldn't see it completely, but he could kind of see it dip down into a depression. But obviously, geography has a lot to do with it, I think. It very well could play a huge part in this. So after this object lands, one being gets out on top of the craft and it starts bouncing around almost like it's weightless, almost kind of like the Kelly Hopkinsville beings. They kind of had this a little bit of weightlessness to them. And huh. uh, th this has been reported in other incidents. There's a not really well-known abduction account called the Mojave incident where these mm. where this couple is camping out in the Mojave desert and all of a sudden they just see these lights in the sky and they just descend and they take refuge in their camper and from the window they can see these beings just drop down from these craft and they just jump around like they're almost weightless until they're finally taken up into the craft and examined but this being just bounces around. It looks like it's taking kind of like a similar thing, geological kind of data. It's taking soil samples. It's It just looks like it's taking organic matter. And all of a sudden, another being appears at the top of the ship. It's just kind of staying near the ship. It's not bouncing around like the other one. And um, these beings are described as three feet tall. They have scrawny necks and narrow faces thin arms and legs, 
huge eyes like rugby balls, as they described them, and they also had long flowing black hair, which is not something commonly <laughs> reported <laughs> with alien beings. They don't generally have hair. No, but so. this is one of my favorite alien descriptions and yes. renderings because <laughs> Rob showed us a picture earlier and it looks like Dr. Seuss meets Alice Cooper. It's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it does kind of, end up. it's the it's the most crazy thing, kind of that fun Dr. Seuss type sketch, but frightening, but also hilarious and ridiculous. And yeah. Goofy. The thing is, it took me a while to realize it, but I looked at the artist's signature, and uh, it's actually a guy I know that created it. I was what? just searching. And, <laughs> no way! Yeah, his name is Rob Morphy, and he has a great podcast called The Kryptonaut Podcast, where oh, they look yeah. into oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. all these it. weird like creature sightings and stuff like that. He's a great artist. It really does look like Alice Cooper if he was an environmentally friendly alien. <laughs> <laughs> just, well, yeah, just uh, curious, doing environmental studies. At a certain point, this being looks over and he can see all these children just looking at him. And he kind of looks like he's approaching them, but they're not exactly sure. But at that point, those children just bolt. They're, <laughs> they're just screaming yeah. out of their minds. Yeah, at this time, there are no adults around because they're all in a brief staff meeting, so they're basically unsupervised. Oh, it's a, what, what, what year was this, Rob? 1994. Yeah, okay. You're getting, getting, getting into the years where uh, people uh, weren't cool with that. Yeah. There were a couple of kids that actually just hung back. They were staring at these beings for an extended period of time. And they claim that they actually communicated telepathically with them. And this one girl, they gave her an alias uh, Elsa. They showed her images of the planet being destroyed by our actions. Like we're just destroying the planet. Like we see time and time again in abduction accounts, yeah. in these mass landings, there's something to do with the Earth. They are interested in it. And they want us to know that we're messing it up. Big yeah, time. and the day the Earth stood still, to reference that again. Yes, exactly. And Elsa, this this one quote, it's it's oh, it gives me kind of chills when she's describing the thoughts. She says, "The thoughts came from the man, from the man's <sighs> eyes." Ooh, jeez, uh, I kind of like so, that. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the case is uh, investigated by a local woman named Cynthia Hind. She, I believe, published a UFO magazine and such. And the um, headmaster, Colin Mackey, actually got a bunch of these kids to draw what they had seen. About 35 of them had. And they're all pretty similar. And if you look at those photos and like the children's photos from Broadhaven, they kind of got similar things going on a little bit. They just, just kind of remind me of each other. But John Mack, the noted abduction researcher, was actually in the area of Zimbabwe at the time. He heard the story and he just rushed right over there. It was actually two weeks of it happening. And he interviewed the kids and to quote him, he says... Something strange happened to the group of children that left them with the impression some form of sentient life cared about the earth and cared about the environment and even cared about the children. Hmm. And that is one case that people are still investigating today. They're making documentaries that are, I believe, coming out even this year. So that's the repeated trend. There aren't any mass sightings that I've noted from 2000 to now, but mm -hmm. um, maybe I'm just not looking hard enough. Well, Rob, uh, let me ask you this. Do you have a gut feeling that there will be? 
Very possibly. Yeah. I mean, we you're a little are... intuitive, I got to say. You know, I get the sense that we're due, perhaps. And just where will that be? It's like they're monitoring us and they keep giving us this message and we just don't listen. Right, so right. why did they pick kids to appear to? Well, because kids are the most impressionable. Yeah. I mean, they're... And they're and, the future. Yeah. In this particular case, there were kids that came away, their parents actually said that they felt concerned for the planet, which is something that when you're a kid, you don't necessarily feel. You're a kid. You want to go out and play. You don't <laughs> right. want to be tormented by thoughts of the earth dying. <laughs> Not usually, but kids, no, they get very impassioned about a cause. And yeah, if you're talking about future generations taking care of the earth, that's a good message too, because adults are already set in their ways and you believe this or you believe that. You're the old dog who doesn't want to learn new tricks. So why not tell that message to an impressionable generation that will grow up and maybe do something about it? Here we are still. The the earth is screaming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's well, again, it's being peppered, you know, by weirdos uh, from outer space. But uh, <laughs> we're visited by these strange things, which from what you've all described here, and, and great descriptions on these, by the way, I uh, really loved uh, listening yes. and following along to this. Just, just fascinating and and well laid out. There, there's competing interests, I would say, like just some are just here to take soil samples. Some here are to play a massive prank. Some here are to deliver a message, but they're not all unified. And there's some that are just willing to trade you some pancakes for some water. <laughs> we're going to have to... Yeah, <laughs> the pancakes. We're, yeah, we're the space come back pancakes. to that one. But we're going to... Yeah, we'll yeah. have to hear that at another time, that great story, or, or just yes. go to your podcast. We'll, we'll have a link to that, to the space pancake story. Again, there's just no shortage of weirdness with all this. Exactly. It, it continues on. The weird stuff just keeps happening. Rob, I just I can't thank you enough for coming on this show and uh, sharing all this stuff with us and with our listeners. It really adds a whole other dimension to both Berwyn and Broadhaven when you look at it in the context of all these surrounding stories. Because, you know, it's like Forrest says, you know, not all the stories have to be true, just one kind of thing. It's like when you get these many stories taken together and these many varying circumstances, even if there's a hoax mixed in there somewhere or a prank, is that happening in every case? You know, it's really fascinating to look at all of these encounters and the circumstances that are different and the ones that are the same. It's really amazing. The other thing about the Alice Coopers is they were tiny, right? They were yeah, real tiny. They were about the size of uh, what people describe uh, gray aliens as, about three feet tall. Yeah, three, tiny I think, Alice Coopers. <laughs> three feet tall and, and uh, rising into the air. Uh, but, yeah. but also, thing one, thing two, it's just... <laughs> if Rob will let us uh, post, uh, Morphe will let us post that uh, photo to our webpage for that episode. We'll we'll show you because it's it's just kind of fun and it'd be frightening to see that like all these things because it's just out of that realm of our everyday experience. Not all the elements to all these stories all have to be true. Just one or two weird elements out of all these stories that don't all have to be true. Yeah, you know, it makes you just wonder what's going on. So you know, all we can do, we're all I try to do is make these connections. And as Scott said, what's similar, what's different, you catalog them. And then you step back and it's like, okay, here are the parallels. Here are the connections. Just wait till one comes down and the tiny Alice Coopers come out and everyone's standing around looking at it and it just goes, hello, Cleveland. Are you ready to rock? Then at yeah. that point, that band that was supposed to go on in 59, they finally went there on. You go. <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, thanks again for coming on. Yeah, Rob, we'll thank you so much. Uh, yeah. 
Everybody needs to go check out Rob's show, Our Strange Skies, which is uh, getting into its 20s and growing and can be found anywhere you can find podcasts. Rob, we hope to have you back on again in the future. Yeah, guys, this has been a blast. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. Uh, anytime I could talk about UFOs is a good time. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, and again, we have a uh, Twitter direct message uh, circle going with Rich Haddam in it. Just the conversations about levitation and alien feet and costumes and medallions <laughs> is just fascinating. So maybe we'll try to do a group thing or something and pick a few weird things that just don't seem to be going away, that just yeah. seem to always keep happening. So Absolutely. <laughs> Man, I always love having Rob on the show. There, there's, <laughs> there's a few things that he talked about, though, that I just I want to touch on before we wrap up tonight's episode. Lay it on me. Let me hear your inner thoughts. Well, the details are really fascinating on these stories, and he's really good at finding the really, yeah. like nitty-gritty, well, you know, the $6 million dollar man thing yeah, and, like, yeah. all that. Rob knows to find the narrative in it, and yeah. that's what he relays. So it's not like he's giving you a PowerPoint presentation yeah. or just the audio or the text. He's actually telling you the story of what happened. So yeah. it's always fun to, to talk with him about that. No, and that's what I like. And like us, he doesn't make any judgments. He just tells what happened to these people, right. and, I, and right. I, I appreciate that, too, because that's what I want to hear. Well, here's the thing. The one UFO with the ladder that came down? Yeah. Why do you need a ladder? You're, you're floating, presumably. <laughs> The other ones, they're leaving footprints, but they're floating. Yeah. Like, what is going on there? When I look at all that stuff, it's very skinwalkery to me where right. there's all these details that don't really make sense. And then I start to wonder if what people are seeing and hearing and feeling is reality or it's yeah. personally their senses right. are being manipulated. With regard to the cattle, you know, the guy saw the cattle like two minutes ago. Then he talks to the farmer who says they've been over here for an hour. Yeah. That's a time thing. And so... There, there's so much going on with so many of our sensory perceptions that are human, trying to relate to something that's essentially inhuman or, yeah. or unhuman or whatever you want to call it. But to touch on your points there, because these are separate things all happening at once, what you just described. Think about Woody Derenberger. And why would you need a giant flying tin lantern that has a... a, a Indrid craft. Yeah, that, yeah, right. That we talked about in Mothman with a squeaky car door. Yeah, with a squeaky metal door. That's exactly... And, and to remind people, it's like, well, is that what Woody could only comprehend yeah. on that? And was it tailored to him? Is that the only way or only thing that Woody could comprehend to make sense to his brain? So was it Woody's brain doing that? Or are these thoughts projected? to Woody so he could understand it. Is that the same thing with the ladder? It's like, well, one, you can't question the, the logic or the technology of something that's off planet because you, you don't know how that works. We don't. So was it something else that to them in their minds appears as a ladder. That's exactly right. And that comes back to that whole thing, whether it's Ghostbusters and Jews of form or it's uh, <laughs> or it's the end of contact, which yeah. I brought this up before, when oh, yeah. she meets her dad on the beach. Right. It's like, I'm appearing to you like this so that you'll feel comfortable and safe. Yeah, but first, I want to talk about the feet because, again, we mentioned it during the discussion with Rob. I think this might have been one of those portions of that thread, which I'm in, <laughs> that I probably, out. I skimmed you over do, it. Yeah, so out. you're going to have to bring it's, me up to speed okay. here, too. Well, as, as I was following along, because really it was between uh, Rich and Rob, rarely or not most commonly are feet on aliens described, or it's kind of weird. And often they're described as floating. And also what's weird is the same thing with shadow people. They don't seem to walk, they float. They yeah. may seem to be taking steps, but they're a foot off the ground. Same thing with these aliens. It's that, you know, people can't remember what types of shoes. Sometimes when they do remember, they're really strange, <laughs> you know, not what you'd expect. A lot of the time people don't remember 
what the shoes were like or what the feet were like or how they were walking. They just seemed to be hovering. If I remember correctly, that's how these beings at Rendlesham were described as levitating. Oh, it's okay. such a common thing. Yeah. And what is it about that? Well, same thing with Kelly Hopkinsville. These goblins seem to be levitating and floating towards them, you know, like a shooting gallery uh, ducks in, in a kind of a weird way. So what's going on there? Are they levitating? And we just can't comprehend that, so we blank out. And for me, we come back around to Kiel's term, ultra-terrestrial. Right. Like, it's interdimensional. Like, is it even there at all? Are we, yeah. are we looking through some kind of partially opaque window into yeah. a different time or space where, it, you know, it's there, but it's not really there. It's on the other right. side of the mirror. There's so many fascinating ideas about all these cases. And frankly, I wish I had known about Ripperston Farm yeah. when we did Skinwalker, because right. I cannot believe how much common ground <laughs> there is here. Yeah, there is. And again, what I said earlier in the discussion was that all we can do is look for patterns and similarities and differences and, and try to make connections. Here. Yeah, there's there a are. Ton. Yeah, so so obviously something, you know, if it's global or attuned to our sense of perception and reality, there are commonalities here. And why are those happening? We don't have answers to that, but what we can do is track these things and try and make sense of it that way, like a detective. And so in talking about that and, and bringing it around to what you were just talking about with the, the six women visiting or the image of six women visiting, that's another commonality that I've noticed. We've talked about this on the show before. When people are abducted and they claim to uh, not see horrifying aliens, you know, trying to operate on them or, or manipulate them in some way or even just kind of awkwardly communicate, a lot of times I've heard the story of small miniature women on craft. I've heard a few times that scenario where somebody describes being tended to, cared for on these craft by small miniature women, beautiful and sometimes naked because it's non-threatening. It's supposed to disarm you a little exactly. bit. Exactly. Yeah. It's not some, you know, six foot tall reptilian with a pair of pliers in its hand. Right. Which is what's really <laughs> like, there, but you, you just know, can't you see don't it. don't know. <laughs> but whatever is in your mind, it's meant to be comforting. So in this case, what you're talking about here with Pauline and the family, as Rob described it, you know, the family was freaked out. They'd just been interviewed by UFO investigator Paul Palmer and, uh, you know, had recounted that story, which also was reliving it in kind of a PTSD way. So everyone's on edge. They're sleeping in the same rooms together. The doors are all open because the kids are freaked out. They're thinking of selling the farm because they've had enough, much like the Shermans yeah. at Skinwalker. It's like, this is just too much. We can't deal with this. We can't do our work. We can't live our lives this way. So when they're just about to quit, that's when she gets visited by six women of seemingly normal appearance. But also, <laughs> I think a man in black standing in the background who stared at her, which is... Maybe they couldn't get around that or just yeah. like, no, I'm fine, right? I'm not freaking anybody out. Like, you kind of are. Yeah. But at least the six women are, are comforting to Pauline. Because to her, again, what's more threatening? It's six men in black with waxy skin and blank stares and impossible grins and just looking freaky. That's terrifying. So this is a little less terrifying. And how Rob described it is that she is left with a feeling of peace and comfort and is able to sleep in that morning and changes her mind. So what was that about other than maybe to possibly change the family's mind and kind of relax them and get them to be, uh, again, not as freaked out? And we've heard that scenario a lot of times where <laughs> Rich always jokes, it's like, how can I help you stop screaming? Yeah. Because they know they have that effect and uh, they're just very awkward about it or don't care. And in the case of the aerial school, 
when the one scary robot, like the kid's terrified, starts screaming. So he just, he just puts the zap on him. Yeah. You know, it's like, please stop screaming. It's upsetting me too. <laughs> and so I'm just going to paralyze you. Yeah. Because that's what this rod does. Yeah. That's what we're seeing here is these patterns. And that's why we had Rob on, because he knows a lot about them. He's been clocking these, uh, you know, since he was a kid. And that brings us to the conclusion of tonight's show. But we did want to tell you a little bit about next week's show, because we're really excited about it. We managed to get, thanks to, again, our friends over at the Unexplainers and uh, specifically a freelance producer, Reese Waters, we were able to get in touch with an actual eyewitness from the Broadhaven School incident. And if you haven't heard about this incident, and that's the reason we touched on all these schools in this week's show, we wanted to let you know that that's not the only time that it's happened. But with Broadhaven, which took place in Wales, and this is part of the Welsh Flap, there was a craft that came down and 14 school children saw it, 14 of them. And then they were asked to draw pictures of what they'd seen and all the pictures looked the same. One of those kids who was 10 years old at the time, his name is Dave Davis. And we have him. He is going to be on the show next week to talk about the experience and what he saw that day and how it's changed his life. And it is really, really fascinating. You guys are going to love it. So you're going to have to come back for that next week. The other thing that's really fascinating about Davis, it was a bonus, wasn't expecting this, was that he knows the Coombs family. Yeah. <laughs> and he yeah. talks about them and what they went through and, you know, how that was all perceived locally. And it's really fascinating. So we're going to be back with that next week. Yeah, and related to that, there's one thing I wanted to mention that we didn't really get into with our discussion with Reese in our episode 113 on Berwyn Mountain UFO incident specifically, Right, but it's related to that. I finally got around to watching all of episode three of The Unexplainers titled, Did a UFO Crash in Northern Wales? And one, those guys are hilarious. I, I yeah, really it's love a great show. show. It's great I'm, I'm kind of hooked on it. But they do interview some serious people, and one of them happens to be Russ Kellett, who's a longtime UFO investigator and researcher in the area. I think he may be Welsh himself, but he's been investigating Berwyn and the event or incident there for over 20 years. Yeah. So, of course, they thought it was really appropriate to go see what ideas he had about it. And he had one really interesting hypothesis or conclusion that he draws about Berwyn specifically. And what he says on the show is that it was told to him by his friends, he just says friends, so maybe I think there's some insiders there who will go unnamed, that told him that the British military had been conducting exercises over the Irish Sea off the west coast of England, off Wales there. And according to these friends that told Russ Kellett this, the military had been using depth charges and mind-sweeping kind of techniques in this exercise, but they had been using what he calls photo flash bombs. And what the idea is here is that these are depth charges dropped. You know, we have like flashbang grenades here, yeah. you know, multiple times brighter than the sun. I've never really seen one, but I've been hit with them a billion times in video games. <laughs> well, you know. Your hearing you go, goes out yeah, and you no, can't see anything. That's yeah. the purpose. Here, I think it's just illumination. <laughs> According to Russ, who I guess checked with the Coast Guard because he wanted to follow up on this, and they kind of confirmed that there were exercises being done on that very night that the Berwyn incident happened. Which would explain the proximity of the military. Exactly. Yeah. Right. That explains that. Yeah. That there were 10 planes dropping these photo flash bombs into the water. And what they do is they will illuminate like a giant massive flare, anything above the water, like a ship or something, you know, a, even a stealth ship. Mm -hmm. So you can see them visually or something submerged below the water line, just lighting up and illuminating like a submarine. Mm -hmm. So these have practical real world applications, but the idea here or what's being implied is that the military were using these to flush something out. 
like a USO. For the newly initiated, that's an unidentified submerged object, which is, uh, you hear us talk about the Shag Harbor incident. That's probably the most famous version of that. That as well as the recently disclosed one on the cover of the New York Times with the uh, the pilot saw. But anyway. Right. And the case there is that uh, oftentimes these craft are described as being both aerial and submersible. Yeah. It's just interchangeable. They work both ways. And so the idea here about the Berwyn incident in itself on that very night is that the military was actively trying to flush something out of the Irish Sea, and it worked, and it went inland. And that's possibly what caused the crash or whatever happened that caused that earthquake of sorts and the freaky lights. And so what Russ Kellett is saying, how it wraps up with his conclusion is that here you have something happening over the Berwyn mountain range. A crash, lights, all this big commotion, but really the action started in the Irish Sea off the coast. It almost creates a diversion of sorts. Everyone's looking up towards the mountains, the real activity is going on in the sea, and of course the British military was tracking it and knew it. So as John and Mike from the Unexplainers are wrapping up their interview with Russ, you know, they say, well, we're going to be here for a few more days. Is there anything else weird, some other weird area we should check out? And Russ says, oh, absolutely. You need to go check out Thandudno, which is an area, it's kind of a, a coastal vacation spot. There's some old Victorian hotels there and uh, some lovely coastline there right next to the Great Orm. And Russ says, you know, there's stories of people going missing, lost time, all kinds of weird strangeness. So there's something about that great orm. And the last thing that Russ says is, there's a hell of a lot more to this than meets the eye. That's going to wrap up our episode on the Welsh Triangle and several stories of UFOs appearing at schools. Special thanks to Rob Christofferson for coming on our show. Find his show, Our Strange Skies, anywhere you get your podcasts. We'll be back next week to drill down on one of the most infamous school sightings in history, the Broadhaven incident, with special guest eyewitness David Davis. Please remember to support our sponsors. They keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Alex Greenwood. Hey, I can't tell you who I am. Hi, I'm Scott Thrower, and I give permission to Astonishing Legends. Galaxy-wide, in perpetuity. I understand this is with no implied promise of present or future compensation. No matter how much I deserve it. Our show is edited by Sarah Wendell, and our theme, which is available as a ringtone, is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Fife. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends if you'd like to support the show in that way. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Good night.